0: Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And
1: I'm Shella Lika, and this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all.
0: Come join us as we push toward a greener future. Today, we're going to be talking to Julian Poulter. He's a partner at Energy Transition Advisors. We're going to be talking about the inevitability of the transition and asking him, can this be an orderly one? Energy Transition Advisors works with other partners
1: on what's called the Inevitable Policy Response Project. And they've created forecast models of what they see, how they see the transition evolving, and what the implications are. We can't wait to dig in and ask our questions.
0: Stay tuned. Julian, we're super happy to have you here. We have so many questions, but we always like our guests to introduce themselves, talk about their journey, how, how you got here, how did you get so interested in energy transition? You have over 30 years of experience at very senior levels, looking at different problems and complex problems. Is climate change the biggest of them all?
2: Well, I started in business strategy and, and, and corporate transformation in the 80s, if you guys can remember that far back, probably not. I was at KPMG in the 80s. Originally, actually, I was in manufacturing. My qualifications were in manufacturing management. I was thought it was good to produce things that you could actually touch and, and hold. And so the science of manufacturing was always interesting to me although I sort of gradually morphed into areas, as somebody said, it's like selling thin air if you go into things like technology and finance. But in dealing with corporate strategy through that, my consulting career, the two sectors I spent most time in, ironically, was was oil and gas and finance. And in fact, it was in the mid-90s. I moved from England to Australia working for a consultancy on an oil and gas project for a small company you may have heard them they're called exxon and uh, (laughs) uh, doing upstream maintenance issues and 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 planning and uh, that was a real insight i'd already worked at some of the other large ones as well Um, so i had a good insight and my consulting career continued for until the early 2000s i became Uh, CEO of a couple of data companies, as was the trend back in the early 2000s. And actually, one of them survived and is still going. So there you go. But I was a bit of an Al Gore convert, actually. Sounds a bit crass, doesn't it? But I, I watched the movie, The Inconvenient Truth. And when everybody was talking optimistically about how to solve climate change and how the policymakers would be forced to address it, I was very skeptical about the policy side. But I thought, hold on, this is all about the money. This is all going to be about how finance responds. And so I went digging for information about how finance was responding to this issue. And I came across the Carbon Disclosure Project, which at the, at the time was pretty much the only source of data around climate risk in the investment chain. It was dealing, obviously, at the company level. So I went to meet the executive chair of CDP, Paul Dickinson, a good friend of mine, and said, this is great. That we are capturing all this data for investors to use, but the real influence is further up the food chain. So we need to capture in data from investors too. Uh, and he said, well, we can't do that because they're our requesting authority for companies. So he says, well, why don't you go and do that? So I you returned to Australia. And set up an organization called the Asset Owners Disclosure Project, mirroring CDP, unashamedly copying the model to try and get disclosure, first of all, from asset owners about how they were seeing climate risk. And then from later from asset managers did that for for 10 years until the TCFD uh, essentially adopted the framework, went back into consulting and joined uh, energy transition advisors as a partner. And that's where I've been ever since. So in a nutshell, that's been my journey.
1: Thanks for sharing. That's fascinating, the evolution of that. And in that time frame, especially with the 10 years that you've been initially started working with the asset owners in Australia and then the asset managers to now, there has been a growing awareness and interest in this space, especially from that sector. How would you sort of explain or describe that transition for them? And where are they now?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed even in the five uh, years since I left AODP. I mean, essentially, if you look at the pathway of the renewable energy history, obviously, renewables have been around for many, many years. But they were essentially a laboratory technology for most of their history until parts of EU policy supported by a number, a small number, of asset owners, mainly Northern Europeans, some Canadian, a few Australian, one or two US, actually did some capital allocation through private equity into solar energy and a little bit into wind as well. Um, those assets didn't go too too well, but nonetheless, the essentially the change in the fundamental economics of renewable energy had begun to shift. And it's these feedback loops, which over history have been very interested. Interesting. So you know, you start to see a progression, and the uh, the cost deflation in emerging technologies starts to go through the very immature part of the growth phase. That allows policymakers to have a bit more confidence that this is going to be the technology of the future. They create more policy. Uh, more and more investors jump on. Economies of scale start to push this past the early stage and into Maturity and eventually the commercialization phases, that's the natural evolution of any market. And that's kind of what has happened as well around renewables to the point where, you know, it has become mainstream. And from a very few leaders, uh, I think when I first we first did, AODP was always global in its focus after an Australian pilot. I think we awarded a high rating to about four or five asset owners in its first year. But that quickly doubled every year. And in the last 18 months, as IPR has shown through its strategic partner program, you've got the giant asset managers who have joined this, not just the the language of the transition, but have started to put their money where their mouth is. In an engagement sense, they've they've started to sack boards who don't toe the line on their transition intentions. That's an important signal. And they're on board because their clients are saying, well, this is where we're going to head to. So you need to build capacity and product for us to award you mandates in the future. So it's a basic commercial reality for asset managers. And they've really cottoned on to the fact that the transition is now inevitable. When we first started the inevitable policy response, a lot of funds, in particularly in the US, didn't think it was inevitable because we were surrounded by potentially another then five to six years of Donald Trump, when we started in 2018, and there was, despite the fact that a lot existed, a lot of momentum existed at state level and at an institutional level, a lot of people didn't think that uh, the U.S. geopolitically would turn a corner. And of course, not only did uh, Biden get in, but the Democratic Congress, which we certainly couldn't, nobody could have foresaw in 2018 but also the rapid institutional momentum that we've seen around net zero targets by particularly the large insurance companies, uh, a bunch of country-based commitments to net zero. Uh, And of course, COVID, which uh, seems to have, might be early days, and there's some bounce back probably in some parts of demand, but it certainly seems to have changed the structural demand level for certain things like, like transport, commercial office space, that sort of thing, which will have some sort of lasting impact, we think, on transport fuels. But like all transitions, there's going to be roadblocks and hiccups. I get a lot of questions now about, well, how come we've got increasing fossil fuel prices? You know, oil at 80 and coal prices have gone through the roof. These sorts of things happen when you get supply constraints. And that was possibly inevitable as well. There's always two sides to that. People say, okay, well, now that fossil fuels are very expensive, they're attractive as an investment uh, opportunity. Bear in mind, we forecast in IPR the shrinking demand uh, curves of these fossil fuels are are as certain as any part of our forecast. So you might have, because of prices, margins looking very healthy. But ultimately, long-term returns will suffer in those sectors once you get a rebalancing of supply and demand. But the flip side of that, of course, is when you've got high fossil fuel prices, you've got lower competitiveness for those fossil fuels. So in power, renewables look better when coal prices are high. In transport, EVs look better when oil prices are high. So there's that constant dynamic. And from a transition perspective, I'm not too worried uh, about short to short medium term rises in fossil fuel prices, it doesn't make the transition any less inevitable.
0: I think we subscribe to that and we agree that is inevitable, but the concern in the short term is can it be orderly? And that's where you have the, the the bad spirals, right? Things getting out of hand with shocks and with unforeseen type of events that can derail things, right? So What is your theory of change, Julian? It is inevitable. We agree with that. We subscribe to that. Our base case for the U.S. is the new solar study by the Department of Energy, which is a 10x story for solar until 2035 and over 100x for clean energy storage. We believe that the technology will be there. The companies that are behind these innovations are in place, but then you know, it is a transition and we still rely on fossil fuel. And there will be inflation and maybe there will be stag inflation because the lack of inputs for transportation as we transition are real and they may preclude some economies from growing. And then what about the political support for this transition?
2: I don't think on the macro side. I mean, if you take where we see... For example, carbon pricing. Carbon pricing is obviously it's a tax. In one sense, it depresses demand. If you, when you get that kind of macro input, then you start, you get into a guessing game about what governments and central banks will do. I think, particularly in a low interest rate environment, which we can see for a, for at least for a, in the short medium term, and perhaps for a bit longer, most people seem to be you know, pricing that that in for at least for, for the foreseeable future. I think you'll get government responses on fiscal stimulus, and central banks will counter in order to stimulate via interest rate mechanisms. So, you know, I think on balance, you may get small markers. There's a lot of talk I see about whether or not the current prices will feed through to inflation. It's too early to say, really. We're too early into into that game. I think if there's going to be policies which depress and, and make capital flow more difficult, then I think you're going to see the counter from both governments and central banks to to rewrite that. Essentially, it doesn't make any sense for governments to create recessionary responses because we need economies to grow in order for there to be sufficient capital for the transition, for there to be enough buoyancy in markets for institutional investors to support that transition as well. But ultimately that requires the prospect of good returns. So, you know, good returns is a combination of having a superior competitive position against your competitors in a market and having policies that arrive in the right way to ensure that those returns can be gleaned. On the disruption side, certainly we, we could be worried. It's worth saying that listed coal has all but disappeared. The equity players in coal are, are of course, mainly unlisted now. There's, of course, some debt risk. So even though in your average diversified investor portfolio, there there may be little equity exposure to coal, you've still got some debt risk that's involved. So that's worth investors keeping an eye on. But in terms of broader systemic disruption, this discussion has been going around for many years. We won't know until we get there. There's simply too many uncertainties. I think with listed coal gone. energy's market cap as a whole has shrunk against the S&P as a proportion. So a lot of people think they'll also end up being private as well. Again, who knows? The point is, is that ultimately with fossil fuel demand reducing, notwithstanding some parts which are resilient, such as oil demand for plastics, which is embedded in plastics, of course, but from a pure emissions perspective, Policies will arrive and technologies will arrive to displace that demand. Will that have a disruptive impact on markets? Well, you know, there might be some disruption. Will it be the level of the subprime crisis? I doubt it very much. Is there a, the equivalent of sort of CDOs and strange deriv- derivatives uh, lying around in, uh, in the banking system relating to, to fossil fuels? Well, there might be one or two, but I simply can't see it being of the same scale as the US housing market. So you might get some equity disruption, but I don't think that you'll see contagion in the same way. You're likely to see some re-rating of debt, no doubt, as those demand falls uh, that we forecast come into play. But I think large-scale contagion is unlikely because there's a balance. And the balancing is that you're always going to have utilities because there are always going to be need for power. You're always going to need industrials because we're going to need cars, steel, cement, aluminium, paper, and so forth. And so there will be replacement methods of, of producing energy in those sectors. And, and it isn't like those particular sectors are going to disappear, even if the energy sources for those sectors are going to transform radically. And, and ultimately, all the signs are that prop, that power in order to supply these sectors will ultimately be cheaper. There's a good reason why renewables are competitive against even fully um, amortized coal in many sectors. It looks like in the long term, this is a renewable resource. <laughs> it's not free because you've got to build the, the equipment and maintain it, but ultimately, it looks like it's going to be highly competitive and that will flow through to those industry sectors and indeed if you look at the eu which for many years has had higher power prices than the other major jurisdictions if they come out the other side of this transition as they will do leading and with lower power prices then that will feed through to their productivity and competitiveness as a region and that's the start of the sort of thing which China and the US are starting to look over their shoulder at. At the moment, whilst we've got uh, carbon border tax adjustments and steel companies complaining that there isn't a level playing field for them in Europe, once this transition is over and they've got a cheaper source of energy, they'll be the last people complaining.
1: And you mentioned earlier, you know, we all agree on the inevitability of this future forecast of the shrinkage of fuel, of the growth of renewables and EVs. Can you talk a little bit about your forecast? What are the base case scenarios versus upside? And what are the key factors that you'll be looking at that will be influencing whether actually it's a longer time frame or a shorter one?
2: Yeah, I mean, the bad news is we we simply can't see how we can forecast net zero by 2050. Therefore, we're into the language of an overshoot. We forecast using three important criteria. The first one is is nothing worse than a flat GDP. We simply can't see a situation where there's a climate equivalent of COVID, if you like, a situation where there is a systemic issue where governments create a recessionary policy response. Uh, We think they will think that is counterintuitive. Some people may argue that that's what's needed right now. It doesn't matter. We just don't think it's forecastable. We don't think it's going to happen. Therefore, governments and policymakers are prepared to go as far as they can without damaging their economies. The second important criteria is a just transition. We don't think that the developed world will simply hammer the economies and tax the economies of the developing and emerging nations in order to solve the emissions problem. We think that there will be a just transition both within economies for exposed workers, but also uh, we think there'll be a just transition for poorer nations as well and support, particularly in doing technology leapfrogging, rather than having to do transitioning fuels. As has been started to be the case in, in India, going straight from, for example, from coals to renewable grids, cutting out things like gas as a transition fuel and so forth but the third and arguably the most important criteria for a a, a credible forecast is the use of commercialized or commercially uh, viable technologies and so that's where things like uh, ccus comes into play because we forecast an overshoot we think that uh, ccs or ccus and other negative emissions technologies are inevitable. Um, and so that creates an awful lot of discussion in a number of quarters because for many, many years, CCUS has been very unpopular, particularly amongst civil society. People in those quarters have suggested that it gives the fossil fuel companies an easy out. Not true. Uh, I think we show clearly in our models that the demand for uh, demand models for those companies in fossil fuel production is doomed to decline. However, despite that, CCUS will be required to address the overshoot. We see the majority of the overshoot being solved by nature-based solutions, reforestation, afforestation. But nonetheless, it's inevitable there will be CCS attached, particularly in the Chinese coal fleet. We shouldn't forget that China's coal fleet is about 12% of global emissions, so it's inevitable that 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 sector uh, will be retrofitted with CCUS. And and look, we've got some CCUS in hard-to-abate industry sectors by the late 2030s, a lot of debate about what will win, what will power those sectors, will it be gas or will it be green hydrogen? We sort of see that potentially a split of the two, but it's very early to call that at the moment. But certainly one of the things we're, we're absolutely certain of is that nature-based solutions will be a rapidly uh, growing market. It will have to be. It's, it's already, as you will know, is the target of offset commitments from the oil and gas companies but indeed, they need liquid carbon markets to work for those offset commitments to, to make sense. So any lobbying that is going to go on in the US, particularly from those oil and gas companies, won't be seen very favourably by their investors. They're looking to those companies to offset their supply chain through those offsets. And as I said, they need the liquid carbon markets to work. And we all need liquid carbon markets if we're going to transact off the value of those forestry assets through the late 2030s and and onwards in order to recover from the overshoot. And worth also adding, I might add, that I think there's every chance that we might be into some of the more esoteric elements of negative emissions technologies. I think the UK government allocated some capital to direct air capture. I, I think you'll see some of that arriving in private equity uh, opportunities in, in the next few years and, and probably some other, like, you know, there's all sort of talk about algae blooms and some other slightly slightly crazier stuff. But I don't think we'll be sticking up umbrellas in front of planet Earth anytime soon. But nonetheless, I think everything will be in play Once we get close to that overshoot, it's really fundamental to this situation that insurance companies in particular have been the first or amongst the loudest in recent years to say, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem on the liability side. We've known that for many years. Now we see it on the asset side as well. That's why they were the first group to to drive the asset owner, uh, Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, being joined by lots of asset managers and pension funds now, of course. And that momentum is critical to limiting that overshoot. And I think you'll see those insurance companies looking to, through debt mainly, of course, to support some of those technologies where they can. Julian, so two thousand
0: and fifty. You've modeled all the way there. But what about 2030? What is your view? Do we get to health emissions by then? What is your scenario for 2030?
2: I think the reality is, is the 2020s are going to see an enormous transition. Uh, but whether that translates to a large, a significant emissions drop is another issue. You've inevitably got this lag between capital transformation and emissions falls, they're not correlated closely in many respects. So the 2020s is going to be tough from an emissions perspective, but nonetheless, you will see rapid transition in the capital bases of companies. I think you'll see a lot of asset owners, particularly looking to reallocate to infrastructure and private equity, look to grab some of the upside opportunities. We hope particularly the asset owners don't focus too much on fees because I think they're going to they're need to look at some of the speciality players, particularly in infrastructure, um, in order to get exposure to some of those sub-asset classes in value-add infrastructure and so forth. They're going to need to be a bit more flexible in portfolio construction. But at the end of the day, equities is a place for large incumbent companies and slow-moving ones at that. So is equity is going to be a place where a lot of the transition is going to happen? It's got the scale, certainly. It's got the corporate balance sheet. Whether or not you've got the management teams at the helms of some of those companies to drive the rapid transition required is a key question that many analysts are asking. Whether or not there is the return opportunities in the target sectors for which they're looking to diversify into is another question. There certainly isn't enough room in the power sector for all the oil and gas companies to transition into, even if they can diversify into hydrogen as a fuel source for industrials and, and so forth. So it may not be as rosy a picture in our forecast as people want to see, but the underlying demand trends, I think, will encourage everybody to understand that the transition is well. It's clearly underway now. And in many sectors and jurisdictions, renewables and, and clean opportunities are winning out. And there's no sign of that abating. There's very few investors, even in the US now, who doubts the inevitability of this transition. But yeah, it may not show up in the way we want by 2030 in terms of emissions
1: fascinating there's so much more we could talk about but we are sadly out of time we'll all be looking out for the new forecasts from uh, ipr and until then thank you so much for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure and pleasure. we hope you'll come back at some point soon
2: no certainly would love to thanks Gary. thanks Cheryl. thank you julie thank, thank you,
1: you. Thank you so much. okay bye thanks for listening climate talk is produced by spark network You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iClima.earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.